This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. In this debate, Dr. Craig engages with Peter Milliken on the question, does God exist? For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Thank you so much and good evening. I want to begin by thanking the Philosophy Society for inviting me to participate in this debate. And I also want to say how privileged I feel to be sharing the platform tonight with Professor Milliken. During the years that Jan and I spent in Birmingham while I was doing my doctoral studies here at the university, we grew to have a warm affection for this country and her people. And I say with all sincerity that it is a joy and a privilege to be back in Birmingham and participate in an event like this. So thank you so much for coming this evening. Now in tonight's debate, I'm going to defend two basic contentions. First, that there are good reasons to think that theism is true. And secondly, that there are not comparably good reasons to think that atheism is true. Now I'll leave it up to Professor Milliken to present his arguments for atheism before I respond to them. In this opening speech, I want to sketch briefly five reasons in favor of God's existence. As a professional philosopher, I think that God makes sense of a wide range of the data of human experience, including philosophical, scientific, moral, historical, and existential considerations. So what are some of these data? Well, number one, the origin of the universe. Have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Why anything at all exists? Well, typically atheists have said that the universe is just eternal and uncaused. But there are good reasons, both philosophical and scientific, which call that, question into, uh, call that assumption into question. Philosophically, the idea of an infinite past is very problematic. If the universe never had a beginning, that means that the number of past events in the history of the universe is infinite. But the real existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to metaphysical absurdities. For example, suppose you had an infinite number of coins, numbered one, two, three, and so on, to infinity, and I took away all the odd-numbered coins. How many coins would you have left? Well, you'd still have all the even-numbered coins, or an infinity of coins. So infinity minus infinity is infinity. But now suppose instead that I took away all of the coins numbered greater than three. Now how many coins would you have left? Three. So infinity minus infinity is three. In each case, I took away an identical number of coins from an identical number of coins and came up with contradictory results. In fact, you can subtract infinity from infinity and get any answer from zero to infinity. For this reason, inverse operations like subtraction and division are simply prohibited in transfinite arithmetic. But in the real world, no such convention has any sway. Obviously, you can give away whatever coins you wish. This and many other examples suggest that infinity 
is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. But that entails that past events, since they're not just ideas but are real, must be finite in number. Therefore, the series of past events can't go back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. This conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. We now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning a finite time ago. In 2003, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin were able to prove that any universe, which is on average in a state of cosmic expansion throughout its history, cannot be infinite in the past, but must have a past space-time boundary. What makes their proof so powerful is that it holds regardless of the physical description of the very early universe. Because we don't yet have a quantum theory of gravity, we are not able to provide a physical description of the first split second of the early universe. But the Borg-Guth-Vilenkin theorem is independent of any such physical description of that moment. Their theorem implies that the quantum vacuum state of the early universe, which some popularizers have misleadingly and inaccurately characterized as nothing, cannot be eternal in the past, but must have had an absolute beginning. Even if our universe is just a tiny part of a so-called multiverse composed of many universes, their theorem requires that the multiverse itself must have a beginning. Now, of course, highly speculative scenarios like loop quantum gravity models, string models, even closed time-like curves have been proposed to try to avoid this absolute beginning. However, these models are fraught with problems, and the bottom line is that none of these theories, even if true, succeed in restoring an eternal past. At most, they just push the beginning back a step. But then the inevitable question arises. Why did the universe come into being? What brought the universe into existence? Some intrepid atheists have said that the universe just popped into being without a cause. But surely that's metaphysically impossible. For such a conclusion is, in the words of the philosopher of science, Bernhard Kanitscheider, in head-on collision with the most successful ontological commitment in the history of science, namely the metaphysical principle that out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a transcendent cause which brought the universe into being. We can summarize our argument thus far as follows. One, the universe began to exist. Two, if the universe began to exist, then the universe has a transcendent cause. Three, therefore, the universe has a transcendent cause. Given the truth of the two premises, the conclusion necessarily follows.
Now, from the very nature of the case, this cause must be an uncaused, changeless, timeless, and immaterial being which created the universe. It must be uncaused because we've seen there cannot be an infinite regress of causes. It must be timeless and therefore changeless, at least without the universe, because it created time. Because it also created space, it must transcend space as well and therefore be immaterial, not physical. Now, there are only two possible candidates that could possibly fit such a description. Either an abstract object, like a number, or else an unembodied mind or consciousness. But abstract objects don't stand in causal relationships. The number seven, for example, can't cause anything. And therefore, it follows logically that the transcendent cause of the universe is an unembodied mind. And thus we're brought not merely to an uncaused cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. Number two, the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. In recent decades, scientists have been stunned by the discovery that the initial conditions of the Big Bang were fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life with a delicacy and precision that literally defy human comprehension. This fine-tuning is of two sorts. First, when the laws of nature are expressed as mathematical equations, you find appearing in them certain constants, like the gravitational constant. These constants are not determined by the laws of nature. Second, in addition to these constants, there are certain arbitrary quantities which are just put in as initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. For example, the amount of entropy uh, in the early universe. Now, all of these constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. Were these constants and quantities to be altered by less than a hair's breadth, the life-permitting balance would be destroyed and life would not exist. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are incomprehensibly more probable than any life-permitting universe. Now, there are only three possible explanations of this extraordinary fine-tuning. Physical necessity, chance, or design. Now, it can't be due to physical necessity because, as we've seen, the constants and quantities are independent of the laws of nature. So, maybe the fine-tuning is due to chance. After all, highly improbable events happen every day. But what serves to distinguish chance events from design is not simply enormous uh, improbability, but also the presence of an independently given pattern to which the event conforms. For example, in the movie Contact, scientists are able to distinguish a signal from outer space from random noise, not just by its improbability, but by its conforming to the pattern of the prime numbers. The fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life 
exhibits just that combination of incomprehensible improbability and an independently given pattern that are the earmarks of design. Hence, we have good reason to think that, too, the fine-tuning is not due to either physical necessity or chance, from which we may conclude, therefore, it is due to design. And thus, the fine-tuning of the universe implies the existence of a designer of the cosmos. Number three, the existence of objective moral values and duties in the world. Our first two arguments give us a creator and designer of the universe, but they don't tell us anything about his moral character. How can we know that he is good? My third argument addresses that question. Premise one states, if God did not exist, objective moral values and duties would not exist. By objective moral values, I mean values which are valid and binding independently of whether people believe in them or not. Many theists and atheists alike agree that if God does not exist, then moral values and duties are not objective in this sense. For example, Michael Roos, an agnostic philosopher of science, explains, morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction and any deeper meaning is illusory. On a naturalistic view, moral values are just the byproduct of biological evolution and social conditioning. Just as a troop of baboons exhibit cooperative and even altruistic behavior, because natural selection has determined it to be advantageous in the struggle for survival, so their primate cousins, Homo sapiens, exhibit similar behavior for the same reason. As a result of socio-biological pressures, there has evolved among Homo sapiens a sort of herd morality, which functions well in the perpetuation of our species. But on the atheistic view, there doesn't seem to be anything that makes this morality objectively binding and true. But that leads to our second premise, that objective moral values and duties do exist. In moral experience, we apprehend a realm of moral values and duties that impose themselves upon us. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Just as in the absence of some defeater, we are rational to trust the deliverances of our senses that there really is a world of physical objects out there, so in the absence of some defeater, we are rational to trust the deliverances of our moral apprehensions. And there is no such defeater. As philosopher Louise Anthony so nicely puts it, any argument for moral skepticism is going to be based upon premises which are less obvious than the reality of objective moral values themselves. Actions like rape, cruelty, and child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're truly evil. Michael Roos himself admits, and I quote, 
The man who says it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equals five. Some things, at least, are really wrong. But then it follows logically and inescapably that three, therefore, God exists. Some people think that the evil in the world disproves God. I think the exact opposite is true. Real evil in the world actually serves to prove the existence of God, since without God to ground objective moral values, good and evil as such would not exist. Number four, the historical facts concerning Jesus of Nazareth. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. Historians have reached something of a consensus that Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come, and as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried on a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people would probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just believe in by faith or not. But there are actually three facts recognized by the majority of historians today, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one, on the Sunday after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups of people saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent New Testament critic Gaut Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. And fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Jews had no belief in a dying and executed Messiah, and Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The fact is that there just is no plausible, naturalistic explanation of these facts. And therefore, it seems to me, the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. Finally, number five, the personal experience of God. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. 
Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments simply by immediately experiencing him. This was the way people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick, my doctoral supervisor, explains, God was known to them as a dynamic will, interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality, as inescapably to be reckoned with as destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experienced reality which gave significance to their lives. Now, if this is so, there's a danger that arguments for God could actually distract our attention from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible promises, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We mustn't so focus on the external proofs that we fail to hear the inner voice of God to our own heart. For those who listen, God becomes an immediate reality in their lives. In conclusion, then, if uh, Peter wants us to believe that God does not exist, he must first tear down all five of the arguments for God's existence that I presented, and then in their place erect a case of his own to prove that God does not exist. Unless and until he does that, I think we should conclude that theism is the more rational worldview. Thank you, Professor Craig. And may I now ask you to welcome to the lectern Professor Millikan, who will have 20 minutes equally to present his arguments and his position with regard to our debate this evening, Does God Exist? Those of you at the back won't know that there are people at the front with red cards. And they are putting them up to make sure that the speakers try and keep within the time allotted to them. We're only beginning the allotted time span as soon as the speaker actually begins to speak. So this time where we're making sure everything's ready for the screen doesn't count. But it will do in a second. Professor Millikan. Thank you very much. Uh, first, I'd like to thank the Student Philosophy Society for inviting me to participate in this event and Professor Craig for fitting it into his punishing schedule. As an academic philosopher, I don't get many opportunities to have my thoughts considered by so many people, but Bill's pulling power has ensured a good turnout. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to you about this extremely important issue and, I hope, to help stimulate your own thoughts about it. Worrying about this very issue was what most engaged me with philosophy when I was a young student. And it's intellectually fascinating as well as potentially vital to, to how we see life, the universe and everything. Most of what I say tonight will be directed against Bill's arguments because he's the one with the onus of proof here, as the proposer of the proposition that God exists. Just to get clear on what this implies, it will be useful to spell it out. So I call this the Christian God hypothesis, that the universe was created by an omnipotent, omniscient, morally perfect being who cares specially about mankind and who acted historically 
through Jesus of Nazareth. This is a specific factual claim, and we're discussing the evidence for and against its truth. So I'm not going to consider the merits or otherwise of religious practice, the consolation of religious belief, nor any alternative supernaturalist beliefs. Since Bill has cited the alleged resurrection of Jesus as one of his arguments, I take it that we are concerned quite specifically with the traditional God of Christian philosophy, not any other. And as you can check out for yourself on Wikipedia, there are plenty of other gods to consider, even if we confine ourselves to the Near East and North Africa and just the letter A. With another 25 letters to consider, plus China, India, Japan, the rest of Asia, Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa, North America, South America, Australasia, and Oceania, there are far more to come. Clearly, we are amazingly prone to believing in gods. And perhaps the main reason for this is our tendency to what has been called promiscuous teleology, that is, seeing purpose in everything. Young children naturally think of inanimate objects as acting with a purpose. For example, in a recent experiment, a majority of seven- and eight-year-olds endorsed the explanation that mountains exist to give animals a place to climb, in preference to the alternative that mountains exist because volcanoes cooled into lumps. We humans are also very prone to seeing patterns in things and looking for reasons for anything we notice, even if it happens to be coincidence. So when we can't find a reason for something significant, such as a violent thunderstorm or a plague, it's very tempting indeed to invoke invisible intelligent powers as the cause. Gods, demons, witches, and so forth. Once this happens, of course, the familiar dynamics of human society and politics come into play. Strong individuals, either devious or deluded, claim special knowledge of and relationship with the invisible gods. And this divine hotline enables them to achieve power, influence and wealth. My own university, Oxford, derived a great deal of money from donors who thought that by leaving a legacy of subsidised scholars to pray for them daily, they would be spared some of the torments of purgatory and hell. Lucrative power of this sort tends to be keenly defended through ruthless suppression of heresies and drumming out of dissent. Over time, the organisational structures evolve and belief systems get entrenched with familiar results. By far the main determinant of religious belief, and overwhelmingly so before international travel became commonplace, is where you were born. This clearly isn't consistent with the hypothesis that people generally adopt their religion on the basis of rational considerations. No, it's manifestly a cultural phenomenon with traditional beliefs cascading down the generations quite independently of whether there's any good reason for holding them. Science used to be rather like that too, when it was thought that Aristotle and the Bible gave the key to everything. Aristotle's science developed from the same promiscuous teleology I mentioned a moment ago. For him and his medieval fo followers, stones fall because they are striving to reach the centre of the universe. And stars move through perfect circles around the earth because they are striving to imitate the eternal perfection of God. We know better in the wake of Galileo, Kepler and Newton.
but that was 2,000 years after Aristotle had died. The progress of knowledge was painfully slow over all those Christian centuries, when pagan libraries and schools were systematically burned and closed, and even the books that remained, including the Bible, could only be read in Latin and Greek. Hereford's Cathedral Mappa Mundi bears graphic testimony to this lack of progress. It dates from the turn of the 14th century, just 200 years before Columbus, but faithfully draws its information from writings of the early 5th century, with nothing apparently learned over those 900 years. By comparison, Galileo's refutation of Aristotle, for which he was famously persecuted by the church, was barely 400 years ago. But in those 400 years, virtually all of science as we know it has built up, massively transforming the world by its careful method of observation, experiment, and open critical scrutiny. Scientific beliefs do not depend on cultural indoctrination for their acceptance and transmission. As a result, you won't find scientific theories being geographically determined in anything like the way that religions are. Now, I expect that as I say all this, Bill is preparing to accuse me of the genetic fallacy, because I might seem to be... (laughs) Bullseye! (laughs) Because I might seem to be arguing that because the belief in the Christian God has dubious origins, therefore it must be false. But that's not what I'm saying. Of course, it's possible that the belief in God could be true, even if we hold it for feeble reasons. But my point is that if some method of acquiring beliefs leads to lots of different and conflicting beliefs, then that method obviously cannot be relied on. Now, many of the religious belief systems around the world do clearly conflict with each other, so they cannot all be true. Indeed, if we focus on those religions that make an exclusive claim to truth, such as Judaism, Christianity and Islam, at most one of these can be true. However, they could well all be false. Since these beliefs are typically acquired and maintained in much the same way, from parents, by religious education, from charismatic preachers, ancient holy books, appeal to religious experience, and so forth, it follows that these methods of acquiring and maintaining beliefs cannot be relied upon to deliver truth. This should give pause to the honest believer, sincerely searching after truth, when he or she finds that many other people, thinking in the same sorts of ways, have come to such incompatible conclusions. Now, if you've been brought up within a Christian culture, it's natural to think that the choice is between Christianity and atheist naturalism. Either God exists, or there's no supernatural at all. And in that context, it's tempting to think that before examining the question in detail, it's a 50-50 probability. So when you come to a debate like this one, you might feel that neither of us has more burden of proof than the other. But this is quite wrong. Because in arguing for the Christian God, Bill is supporting just one supernaturalist system out of thousands, whereas I am doubting whether whether there is good reason to believe in any disembodied supernatural intelligence. There is a total lack of any solid scientific evidence for such disembodied intelligence. All well-attested examples of intelligent behavior rely on a complex physical structure, a brain, or perhaps in the future, a computer. 
Moreover, all well-attested examples of perception and mental causation rely on physical intermediaries, light rays, signals travelling down nerves, and so forth. There is no solid evidence whatever for clairvoyance, telepathy, or telekinesis. None. Maybe you don't want to take my word on that, but it's surely obvious from everyday experience that the quality of our thinking clearly depends on the physical properties of our brain. When we are sick or tired or senile or under the influence of drugs or deprived of oxygen, our thought is correspondingly affected. This is absolutely familiar, yet many religions, including Christianity, would have us believe that our thought can exist quite independently of the brain, unimpaired and even enhanced after the brain and the whole body have been completely destroyed. Well, let me be extremely generous and allow that amazing conjecture, which lacks any shred of solid repeatable experimental support and which is so contrary to all our experience of the close correlation between the mind and the brain, a probability of 50%. Even if I do so, Bill's specific religious claim that there is just one omniperfect God uniquely revealed through Jesus of Nazareth has to share that 50% probability with thousands of other conflicting religions. This is why I say that the rational attitude is to place a very strong burden of proof on Bill. Unless his case is overwhelmingly strong, we should not believe that there is any such God. That implies at least agnosticism, but I think also atheism. The rational attitude, in the absence of a very strong case for the existence of a Christian God, is to believe that there is no such thing. Just as the rational attitude towards any speculative theory in the absence of a strong case in favour is to presume that it is probably false. Speculative religious theories are a dime a dozen and the vast majority of them have to be false. Why should we suppose that this one is any exception to the rule? So how strong is Bill's case for the Christian God? I'll start with his favourite Kalam cosmological argument the first part of which usually goes like this, and I'm presenting it slightly different from the way Bill has tonight. Um, I prefer this way because it divides it into two stages, as we'll see. So we have whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. The argument is, of course, logically valid. Indeed, the conclusion follows trivially from the premises. But I'm not persuaded by either of the premises. Where is the evidence that whatever begins to exist has a cause? Certainly I have plenty of experience of change in the world and of new things being formed from old, as when a house is built or a plant grows from seed. And as far as I can tell, such changes that I have experienced are indeed causally governed. But these changes were all rearrangements of existing materials, and I've never experienced things coming into existence from nothing. So I cannot infer from my own experience that it is reasonable to expect creation from nothing, if it ever happens, to be causal in the same way. Moreover, such second-hand evidence as I do have that bears on the matter tells in the opposite direction. Quantum particles do apparently jump into and out of existence from nothing, but this behaviour seems to be quite random. So the closest examples that I know of to creation ex nihilo are non-causal, and we have even more reason to doubt Bill's first premise. But things are even worse than this. 
For every change that I have experienced in the world has had, as far as I can tell, a physical cause. Even personal actions, as I said before, happen through physical intermediaries. All our evidence suggests that mental activity is dependent on brain activity. And in any case, I've never seen mere thought create a new object. So a more precise version of Bill's first premise would be whatever begins to exist has a physical cause. However, if the universe is understood to include all physical things, then it seems obvious that it as a whole cannot have a physical cause. And I have excellent reason to doubt whether that principle can be valid as applied to the entire universe. This illustrates how problematic it can be to extend any principle from parts to wholes, a mistake which is sufficiently well known to have the name of the fallacy of composition. Every sheep in the farmer's flock has a mother, but it doesn't follow that the flock has a mother. And even if every physical thing has a cause, it does not follow that the entirety of physical things has a cause. This point is even more compelling in the wake of Einstein's general relativity which implies that space and time are in some way part of the physical universe. The only sorts of causes that we can understand, including intelligent causes, act in time. If time does not exist without the physical universe, then it is hard to understand how the notion of causation can even apply to the creation of that universe. What about Bill's second premise, that the universe began to exist? To get clear what's being claimed here, we need to distinguish between our local universe, for which there is evidence of some sort of Big Bang about 13.7 billion years ago, and the global universe, by which I mean all physical things, whether in our local universe or elsewhere. Now, cosmologists speculate about the possibility of there being multiple universes. Indeed, there are a number of different theories that would predict this. They also speculate about oscillating, bubble, or evolving universes with multiple big bangs and so forth. So even if our local universe did indeed begin to exist in the big bang, it's entirely possible that it has a physical cause within the global universe. Moreover, there is no contradiction in supposing that the global universe is infinite in the past, even if the local universe is not. Bill standardly gives two reasons for thinking otherwise, uh, one of them that infinities cannot be real. I shall return to that later. Bill's second standard reason for denying that the universe is infinite in the past appeals to physics and the bored Guth and Vilenkin theorem, which proves, making assumptions that seem reasonable, that any universe which is on average in expansion cannot be et eternal in the past. An interesting result indeed, but it doesn't show anything like as much as Bill needs. In response to the question, does your theorem prove that the universe must have had a beginning, Alex Vilenkin answers, no, but it proves that the expansion of the universe must have had a beginning. You can evade the theorem by postulating that the universe was contracting prior to some time. And there are theories such as loop quantum cosmology and Harava gravity that suggests precisely such a prior contraction before the Big Bang. In any case, the bottom line that is that as things stand now, it's impossible to have any confidence in tracing our physical theories back to or beyond the Big Bang. 
They would imply an initial singularity, a point of infinite density, temperature, pressure and curvature, which presumably on Bill's principles would be impossible anyway since he says infinities aren't real. But more importantly, it seems that general re relativity on which all this is based is inconsistent with quantum mechanics and breaks down at these infin infinitesimal scales. So all we know here is that our science cannot cope with it. Trying to draw any firm conclusion seems wishful thinking. This should not come as any surprise to anyone who has learned from my favorite philosopher, David Hume. When we look beyond human affairs, when we carry our speculations into the two eternities before and after the present state of things, into the creation and formation of the universe, the existence and properties of spirits, the universal spirit, infinite and incomprehensible, we must be far removed from the smallest tendency to skepticism, not to be apprehensive that we have here got quite beyond the reach of our faculties. Everything we know about modern physics suggests that at a very small and very large scale, our intuitive notions of what makes sense are very unreliable guides to truth. So Bill's attempts to apply everyday common sense principles about causation and about infinities to the beginning of the universe, when time gives out and our theories posit infinite singularities, strike me as completely unpersuasive, quite apart from the specific difficulties that I've already pointed out. Likewise, when he goes on to argue that if the physical universe has a cause, then this must be an immaterial mind. Recall that we have no evidence whatever that minds can exist in the absence of a physical substrate. So the idea that a mind might exist in the absence of the entire physical universe is complete speculation. It seems far more plausible to me to say that if, despite everything, <coughs> despite everything I've said, the physical universe has a non-physical cause, then that cause is likely to be something of a kind that we are completely unable to grasp because it bears no relation to anything that we have experienced neither a familiar physical object, nor an abstract entity, nor a mind. We are finite physical animals, evolved to live and perceive within a world of medium-sized objects. There is no reason whatever to suppose that our animal faculties will be adequate to fathom the origins or possibly the infinite history of worlds. As an analogy, imagine a dog or a mouse trying to understand the organization of a university. What chance would it have? Yet we are far closer in intellect to these animals, compared to that of an infinite God, than the workings of the entire universe are to a university. My treatment of Bill's moral argument will have to be very brief, but, and I'm sure we'll return to this later. Here I want to ask Bill to say more on what he means by objective moral values, because the word objective is notoriously slippery. In a published debate, he says, when I speak of objective moral values, I mean moral values that are valid and binding whether anyone believes in them or not. But this really doesn't help very much because atheists who take morality seriously, and I think most do, are in my experience very unlikely to think that what is, is right and wrong is just a democratic matter of what people believe. Utilitarians, for example, will say that there is a standard of morals which is independent of our beliefs. 
People might universally believe that beating children is a good thing, which increases the sum of human happiness or whatever, but be wrong. Kantians, likewise, have a standard of moral right and wrong, which appeals to a rational judgment of what can properly be universalized. There's no democratic assumption that we should just conform to the popular view. And Humeans, who base morality on natural human sentiment, are happy to acknowledge that morality can be warped, most notably by religious dogma, so that a correct judgment of virtue and vice can be different from that of the religious majority. We'll be returning to this as to Bill's other arguments that I haven't addressed yet, but I'd like to end with a challenge to him. To both specify a precise sense of objective moral values which requires God's existence and give solid evidence that there are indeed objective moral values in that same sense. I'm very doubtful that this challenge can be met, but we'll see. And when I've heard what he has to say on the matter, I shall also be saying a little about the problem of evil, perhaps the strongest argument in the armory of unbelief, which I haven't yet considered at all. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Millikan, and can I thank both our speakers so far for the, not only the deep knowledge and philosophy that they bring to their debate, but also the courtesy that they are bringing to a debate, which we should always bear in mind when we disagree with each other. For the first rebuttal, Bill, would you return? You'll recall that in my opening speech I said I would defend two contentions in tonight's debate. First, that there are good reasons to think that theism is true. Secondly, that there are not comparably good reasons to think that atheism is true. Now, has Professor Milliken offered comparably good reasons for atheism tonight? Well, I think not. Indeed, he said, I have the burden of proof because I'm holding that God does exist, and that's the proposition under the debate. I think that's incorrect. The proposition under debate tonight is a question. Does God exist? And if he intends to answer that no, then he needs to give some justification for that. Otherwise, we're simply left with uh, agnosticism as a sort of default position. But if he is going to answer the question under debate tonight, uh, then he needs to offer arguments for atheism. Now, he suggests that children have a tendency to personalize things, that religion is a cultural phenomenon. And as he anticipated, I was immediately going to say, but as an argument against the uh, belief in God, as a claim that that means the proposition God exists is false, this is clearly the genetic fallacy. But he responds, well, I'm not saying that uh, the, the belief in God is therefore false. Um, he's saying it just shows that if some method leads to conflicting beliefs, then it can't be relied upon. Well, let me comment in two respects on that. First, there is no one method which is common to all religions which leads to these conflicting beliefs. It's not as though the diversity of religions leads to the uh, inadequacy of some one method for inferring. I'd like to know what that method is if he thinks there is one. But secondly, and more importantly, my method this evening is logic and evidence, plus personal experience. So it's the same sort of evidence to which he would appeal to justify scientific hypotheses. 
So I don't think that that consideration um, need concern us tonight. We're on the same playing field using the same method, logic and evidence. He does give one argument for atheism, though, which is that the absence of evidence for God should lead us to think that God does not exist. Well, now, I think this is uh, fallacious. The absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. For example, we have no evidence of an early inflationary expansion of the universe. And yet, many cosmologists believe that such an era actually occurred. Or we have no evidence that there's gold on Pluto, for example. Does that mean, therefore, there is no gold on Pluto? Clearly not. So when does the absence of evidence count as evidence that something does not exist? Well, it would only be in the case that we have uh, a situation in which if something did exist, then we should expect to see more evidence of its existence than that which we do see. For example, the absence of evidence for a planet between Venus and the Earth is good evidence that there is no such planet. Now, apply that to God. The absence of evidence for God's existence would count as evidence against God's existence only in the case that if God did exist, we should expect to see more evidence than we do see. And in practical terms, what that means is if God exists, should we expect to see more evidence of his being than the origin of the universe out of nothing, the exquisite fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life, the apprehension of a realm of objective moral values, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, and the immediate experience of God? Well, I think the answer is obviously not. So to carry this point, uh, Dr. Milliken needs to prove that it is highly probable that if God exists, then we should have more evidence of his existence than that which we do have. And I think that's sheer speculation. So we haven't heard any really good arguments tonight to think that God does not exist. How does he respond to my arguments for God's existence? Well, my first argument, if we can go back to my PowerPoint, it doesn't look, oops, uh, sorry, Peter. Uh, no, no, that's all right. Um, my first argument was based on the origin of the universe. And I argued first that the universe began to exist. And he, here he says, well, but look, there are different multiverse scenarios, various models of the universe. I talked about those in my opening speech and explained that the bohr guth vilenkin theorem applies to those and shows the beginning of the universe. And then he says, but uh, Vilenkin says that you can avoid the uh, bohr guth vilenkin theorem by positing a contraction prior to this one. Now, this is a statement from a letter of Vilenkin to Victor Stenger, which is very often quoted out of context by atheists. Let me read you the full context. Vilenkin says, <clears throat> You can evade the theorem by postulating that the universe was contracting prior to some time. This sounds as if there is nothing wrong with having a contraction prior to expansion. But the problem is that a contracting universe is highly unstable. Small perturbations would cause it to develop all sorts of messy singularities, so it would never make it to the expanding phase. So, he says, if someone asks me whether or not the theorem I proved with Bord and Groth implies that the universe had a beginning, I would say that the short answer is yes. If you are willing to get into subtleties, then the answer is no, but. 
That is to say, you've got the problem with the messy singularities that prevent re-expansion. So, in fact, the bohr guth vilenkin theorem does imply an absolute beginning of the universe. Dr. Milligan says, but we need a quantum theory of gravity to describe the early universe. The bohr guth vilenkin theorem is independent of that. Vilenkin says, the remarkable thing about this theorem is its sweeping generality. We did not even assume that gravity is described by Einstein's equations. So if Einstein's gravity requires some modification, our conclusion will still hold. So it, it isn't affected by having a quantum gravity uh, description. Here's Vilenkin's conclusion. It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. So we've got good cosmological evidence that the universe began to exist, and Peter has yet to address my philosophical arguments against the uh, infinity of the past. So we have good reason to think that the universe began to exist. Now, I suggest if the universe began to exist, then the universe has a cause. Here, Dr. Millikan says, but we don't experience creation out of nothing. That's right. But cre uh, rather, we don't experience things coming into being without material causes. That's true. But if something cannot come into being without, a without a, an efficient cause, it is even doubly impossible for it to come into being without an efficient cause and a material cause. This is even more absurd than something coming into being without an efficient cause. David Hume, so beloved to Professor Milliken, said, I never asserted so absurd a proposition that anything might arise without a cause. I only maintain that our certainty of the falsehood of that proposition proceeded neither from intuition nor demonstration, but from another source. Even someone like Hume recognized that it's absurd to think that something could pop into being with neither a material nor an efficient cause. Dr. Millikan says, but quantum physics posits the origin of things out of nothing. Not at all. As I said in quantum physics, the vacuum is a sea of fluctuating energy. It is not nothing. Bernhard Kanichaita, the philosopher of science, says, vacuum fluctuation models are far from being a spontaneous generation of everything from naught. But the origin of that embryonic bubble is really a causal process leading from a primordial substratum with a rich physical structure to a materialized substratum of the vacuum. This process includes that weak kind of causal dependence peculiar to every quantum mechanical process. So quantum physics is not an exception to the principle that if the universe began to exist, the universe has a, ca a cause. Finally, Dr. Millikan says this commits the fallacy of composition, reasoning that because a property is hold, held by a part of a thing, therefore it's held by the whole of thing. The argument isn't reasoning from composition. I'm not saying because every part of the universe has a cause, the whole universe has a cause. Rather, what I'm saying is that it's metaphysically absurd to think that things can pop into being out of non-being. Think of what non-being is. It has no powers. It has no properties. It has no potentialities. So how can the universe pop into being uncaused from literal non-being. That's clearly metaphysically impossible. 
It is far more plausible to think that the potentiality of the universe's existence lay in the power of God to create it. Professor Millikan's final objection to the Kalam argument is that there is no such thing as an unembodied mind so that it cannot be a mind. However, my argument is an argument for the existence of an unembodied mind. There must be a cause of the universe. It cannot be material, so it's either got to be an abstract object or an unembodied mind, and it can't be an abstract object. Besides that, I think we're acquainted with ourselves as uh, as immaterial persons. Reductive materialism doesn't work because material properties um, are not the same as mental properties. For example, the brain is not jubilant or sad. And epiphenomenalism, the view that the physical brain has mental properties, is incompatible with properties like self-identity over time, intentional states, freedom of the will, and mental causation. And so I think the best view of human beings is some sort of substance uh, dualism, dualism interactionism, that we as immaterial agents are linked with physical bodies and have the ability to cause physical effects in the world. And similarly, God can cause physical effects in the world much as my mind or soul can cause physical effects in my body. And Dr. Milliken hasn't given any reason or argument to think that this is impossible. So I think that the origin of the universe argument still stands and provides good grounds for thinking that there is a transcendent, personal, immaterial creator in the universe. Now, I didn't hear a response to the fine-tuning argument. With respect to the moral argument, he merely said that atheists um, don't say that moral values are arbitrary. Rather, we've got utilitarian theories, Humean theories, Kantian theories. The point is all of those presuppose that human beings have some sort of intrinsic value. And that is what I see no justification for on naturalism. On naturalism, human beings are just slightly advanced primates, uh, and I see no more reason to think on atheism that human beings would be valuable than chimpanzees or baboons. Moreover, it's very difficult on atheism to see any source of moral obligation. Why would we have moral prohibitions and obligations if there is no one to prohibit or command them. As chemists and ethicists alike recognize, prescriptions require prescribers, and moral prescriptions require a moral prescriber. Without a moral lawgiver, I think moral obligation is unintelligible. So if you agree with me that there are objective moral values, I think you'll agree with me that it's most plausible that God exists. I'll await to hear Dr. Milliken's refutations of the other arguments that I offered in my opening speech. Please welcome back Professor Milliken. Who kindly lost his place within his own... <laughs> PowerPoint presentation (laughs) to help his opponent this evening. So we'll be there in just a moment to be able to bring you the first rebuttal by Professor Millikan with regard to Professor Craig's Uh, argument that God does exist. Professor Millikan. (laughs) Thank you very much. Now, uh, (laughs) 
Unlike Bill, I'm not an experienced pro at these things. This is my first, so I'm going to have to be a bit careful with the time. Uh, Bill's made some very interesting responses there, but I'm going to come back to those once I know how much time I've got. Because before that, I want to say something about the fine-tuning argument, and that will be uh, pertinent to some of the comments that Bill has already made. So the fine-tuning argument is based on some apparent coincidences in physics that are genuinely intriguing, and I would concede this much to it, that if there is a physically inexplicable coincidence of the fundamental constants of nature, whose values have to be precisely tuned within a wide range of otherwise available possibilities to make a complex universe possible, then this constitutes a phenomenon which very naturally invites explanation in terms of a cosmic scale designer. But I also see good reason for caution and modesty here. First, we must beware our natural tendency to see purpose in things too readily. This can make us bad judges of what is an impressive coincidence and what is not. Secondly, we only have experience of this universe. So even making sense of cosmic probabilistic claims is problematic. Our experiments and observations have a sample size of one. And we really have no idea of the range of possible alternative scenarios. Suppose someone in the 16th century or before were trying to imagine modern physics. Thirdly, we can't rule out that some deeper explanation will be found for any apparent coincidences. For example, Guth's theory of cosmic inflation can explain some of them. Thirdly, there might be multiple universes, such as a world ensemble, an evolving sequence or a complex of bubble universes, each with its own Big Bang and different conditions, then it would be no surprise at all that observers have evolved only in those universes that are conducive to life. Fourthly, the physics on which this entire argument is based is young, incomplete and radically imperfect. It's less than a hundred years since general relativity and quantum mechanics, our best theories of the large and the small, were developed. And we still have no way of reconciling these with each other. String theory attempts this and speculates that the universe has 11 dimensions in order to facilitate it. But that still has a very long way to go and is widely regarded with amused scepticism by experimental physicists. Even worse, barely 30 years have passed since the existence of dark matter was corroborated and only 13 years since dark energy was postulated. We still don't have much clue what either of these are. But analysis of the latest data from space suggests that 72.8% of the mass of the universe is constituted by dark energy and 22.7% by dark matter. That leaves only 4.56% as atomic matter, the stuff that we knew to exist prior to 1980. In short, a huge proportion of modern physics, including the results that Bill appeals to, is extremely recent and riddled with unsolved problems and anomalies. How likely is it that the physics of a hundred years hence will look the same? Quite apart from all this, the fine-tuning argument seems very ill-adapted for proving, or even supporting, the existence of an omniperfect Christian God. One important point is that it does nothing to favour the existence of a morally perfect God over an equally powerful but supremely evil God. 
a nasty character I have called anti-God. Any reason that God would have for facilitating the evolution of complex, conscious, morally sensitive creatures capable of a loving relationship would equally be a reason for anti-God. The same qualities which give the potential for joy and love equally give the potential for misery and hate. So the fine-tuning argument does nothing to support the claim that God is good rather than evil or indeed morally neutral. Perhaps the universe was just an amusing experiment or an exercise in dynamic art. But an even more serious problem focuses on God's alleged omnipotence and omniscience. For on this hypothesis, the Christian hypothesis, God does not have to work within anything like the existing physical rules in order to create the universe. He can make up and impose whatever rules he likes and know infallibly, without even having to experiment, exactly what their consequences will be. So if his main aim was to create a universe finely tuned for the development of intelligent life, one has to say that he's not been very efficient. Apparently, it has taken nearly 14 billion years just to produce one species capable of relationship with him. To put that into perspective, if we think of the time since the Big Bang as a year, then the early Bronze Age was 11 seconds ago, and the life of Jesus of Nazareth barely 4.6 seconds. Moreover, according to the physics on which the fine-tune argument is based, even the entire period in which the stars and planets exist will be utterly dominated by the vastly longer period of black holes. Considering this as one year, the life of man on this planet would be an unimaginably tiny fraction of a picosecond. Again, the Milky Way galaxy has around 200 billion stars. And the latest observations suggest more than 125 billion other galaxies. Even if we make the generous assumption of one Earth-like habitable planet for every star, the overwhelming majority of the space in the, these galaxies, quite apart from the huge expanses between them, is totally inhospitable to life. To give an idea of the pro proportions here, the fine-tuning argument has been likened to claiming that a volume equal to six million Olympic swimming pools but capable of holding only one molecule of water, is fine-tuned for water storage. There's yet another more specific problem for Christian theology here. If the universe is indeed fine-tuned to produce life capable of relationship with God, then presumably trillions of these vast numbers of alien planets will also contain such species. Yet when it was taken absolutely for granted that the Earth was the centre of the universe, the Nicene Creed told us that Jesus was the unique incarnation of the second person of the Holy Trinity and the pre-existing agent who created the world, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, etc. Presumably now we must assume that the second person has enjoyed innumerable incarnations over space and time in a huge variety of shapes and sizes, and I look forward to seeing the theological working out of this implication of the fine-tuning argument. I now say, want to say a word about the issue of infinity, which is one of the things that uh, Bill took up in his rebuttal there. He said that I hadn't addressed his philosophical arguments against infinity. Now, of course, I accept that reasoning with infinities is a bit strange. It's odd to think that you can have two infinite sets of objects, like the set of odd numbers and the set of even numbers, 
which when added together yields a set which is exactly the same size as each of them. But there's no contradiction here, and indeed we know since the work of Georg Cantor that it's entirely possible to treat operations with infinities rationally and rigorously. Now suppose we take an infinite set, say all the integers counting upwards from four, and we add three more elements, say the integers one, two, and three. This yields another infinite set, the set of all positive integers. So infinity plus three equals infinity, and presumably infinity minus infinity equals three, right? But as we know from the case of the odd numbers and the even numbers, infinity plus infinity equals infinity, which presumably means that infinity minus infinity equals infinity. So let's see those, they're up on the screen, together with a familiar arithmetical example to make clear what the pattern is. And the colours are intended to help there. There's nothing wrong with any of the additions here, but we can see that there's a problem, indeed an apparent contradiction, with the subtractions. Infinity minus infinity, apparently, cannot be given a consistent result. This is true, but absolutely nothing to worry about. Because all it means is that a certain equation, infinity plus what equals infinity, has more than one solution. When we say that 12 minus 7 equals 5, all we mean is that 5 is the unique solution to the equation 7 plus what equals 12. Where this sort of equation has more than one possible solution, we cannot properly talk about subtraction because no unique value can be specified in that way. That's all. And there's absolutely nothing mysterious or contradictory about any of this. It's the same reason why you can't divide zero by zero. The equation zero times what equals zero has lots of solutions. But that doesn't mean there's some fundamental problem with arithmetic using zero. It's just what you'd expect, given that zero times anything yields the same result. Well, I have got a little bit of time now to... Uh, address some of the things that um, Bill mentioned. Um, he said that his method is logic and evidence. I'm clearly, this is why I feel it's very important to go on and deal with the arguments. I'm not suggesting for a moment that my argument about the onus of proof by itself was anything like enough. I agree, incidentally, that absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence, but I disagree uh, with his claim that if God existed, you'd expect a world just like this one, or at least it seemed to me that that was an implicit claim. If God existed, I would expect a world in which his existence was a great deal more plausible than the existence of anti-God. Um, and I'm not going to argue that case in detail. Now, you've probably got enough of that in London from Stephen Law. Uh, coincidentally, both he and I have written papers with that uh, hypothesis in, quite independently. Um, Vilenkin, the problem is that the contracting universe is unstable. Yes, but of course that depends on current physics. Um, and I am saying that we have no reason whatever to be so terrifically confident about current physics. It's changing very quickly. The very fact that the bord guth vilenkin theorem is so recent uh, ought to make us aware of that. The quantum vacuum, it's not nothing. No, I agree it's not nothing. But then it's the nearest we get... Uh, it was a nice trick to quote David Hume against me. Uh, <laughs> I never asserted so absurd a proposition that, uh, that um, something can come into existence without a cause. No, no, indeed. 
Uh, and I don't, think, I don't think he did assert that. But Hume actually, this is, this is one of the, the places where Hume nods. Hume is a determinist, but he hasn't got a good reason for his determinism. I published a paper last year actually arguing exactly that. Uh, he's wrong. On his own principles, he ought to be open to uh, indeterminism. But he isn't. And I think he's just inheriting the prejudices of the time. Um, the point I'm making is that we don't have any reason for this claim that everything that nothing can come into existence without a cause, except from our experience. And the nearest we get in our experience to that, to things coming into existence without a cause, is in the quantum vacuum. All right, it may not be a perfect vacuum. It's the nearest we've got. So where is your evidence that nothing can come into existence without a cause? Um, abstract object or disembodied mind, I said, I don't, just don't see any basis for the assumption that those are the only options. There may be all sorts of things we've never thought of. Um, I agree that mental properties aren't physical properties and that epiphenomenalism is incorrect, uh, but I don't see that as a, a, a problem at all. A computer has algorithmic properties as well as physical properties. It doesn't mean it. there has to be some immaterial substance in the computer. Um, morals, I'm going to have to come back to. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Malikan, and welcome back now, Professor Craig, with his second rebuttal. Well, you can see how these issues just open up into an incredible uh, array of different questions, so let's take a deep breath and uh, go at it one more round. Have we seen any good arguments for atheism tonight? Well, I think it was clear from that last speech that we haven't. I said that the absence of evidence for an object is evidence that it doesn't exist only in the case that it is highly probable that if the object did exist, we should expect to see more evidence of it than we do. And here Dr. Millikan simply asserted, honestly, his personal opinion. He says, I think if God existed, then his existence should be more obvious. But that's not much of an argument. I don't see any grounds for thinking that's highly probable especially if we're dealing with a God who knows how people would react under different circumstances, he may well know that giving any more evidence of his existence would not lead more people to love and come to know his salvation and find eternal life. God isn't interested in just convincing people that there's one more piece of furniture in the universe, some extra object to add to their ontology. He wants people to come into a saving relationship with him. And it may well be the case that God knew that if he were to provide any more evidence, it wouldn't do any more good in bringing people into such a relationship. If people won't look at the evidence that we have now, perhaps they wouldn't have come to know God and, and uh, find salvation, even if the existence of God were as plain as the nose on your face. Indeed, they might have come to resent a God who made his existence so obvious uh, for such effrontery. So we don't have really any good argument to think that God does not exist tonight. So do we have good reasons to think that theism is true? Let's talk first about the origin of the universe. First we saw philosophical and scientific evidence that the universe began to exist. With regard to the philosophical argument, um, Dr. Millikan says that infinity minus infinity is not defined in transfinite arithmetic. There's more than one solution to the equation. And that is precisely the problem when you try to translate this into the real world. 
You can slap the hand of the mathematician who tries to subtract infinity from infinity, but you can't take, uh, stop someone from taking away a certain number of coins. And the contradiction is that you have identical quantities, you subtract identical quantities, and you come up with non-identical results. And it needs to be understood infinity in this case is not that sideways lazy eight. It's, it's the number aleph null, which is a number. It is the cardinal number of infinity, and it would be identical minus identicals yields non-identicals. And I submit in reality that's absurd. As for zero, I think zero is very problematic, frankly. I mean, suppose someone said, there's an elephant in the quad. And I said, well, I don't see any elephant in the quad. He says, well, there is an elephant in the quad, and its number is zero. Well, I think that's very problematic. I, I don't think there is such a thing as zero. It means just the absence of something. Now, as for the argument for the physical evidence for the beginning of the universe, here, Dr. Millikan says, this depends on current physics. Well, of course it does, but that just is to admit my point, that the evidence of current physics supports the fact of the beginning of the universe. Moreover, this is widely accepted by physicists today. According to James Sinclair, a physicist on the board guth theorem, the board guth singularity theorem is now widely accepted within the physics community. As of this writing, 2009, it has gone largely unchallenged. So the evidence of contemporary cosmology supports my premise that the universe began to exist. Now, if the universe began to exist, then surely it has a cause. Um, and here, Dr. Millikan didn't really respond to my point that the vacuum is not nothing, that if something can't come into being without an efficient cause, it's doubly absurd for it to come into being without an efficient or a material cause. Can there be an unembodied mind that created the universe? Well, remember, I suggested that we are minds that are connected with bodies, that we are immaterial substances that produce effects in our physical bodies. And here, if I, unless I misunderstood you, Peter, I thought he said epiphenomenalism is a wreck. I, I thought that was what he said, and I would agree with that, but if that's the case, then I don't see that there's any argument that's been given tonight against the substance dualist view of human being, that we are immaterial substances conjoined with bodies, and therefore I see no problem in thinking that there might be an immaterial spiritual consciousness or mind, God, who created the universe. Indeed, I've given an argument for that conclusion uh, based on the origin of the universe. Moreover, the argument from fine-tuning supports that. Now, here we have a number of arguments offered in response. I count nine of them, uh, soundbite-ish arguments. Number one, we should be cautious about this, of course. Number two, the probability claims are problematic. I think not. You simply compare the possible range that these uh, constants or quantities could take to the life-permitting range, and you find it is exquisitely narrow so that a dart thrown randomly at the range would have no meaningful possibility of striking the life-permitting range. The third, fourth, and fifth objections are all based upon the fact that the current physics isn't very well established. And here again, I think most physicists would disagree. Robin Collins, a leading expert in this area, says, the above cases of fine-tuning alone show that the issue of fine-tuning is not likely to be resolved by a future physics. The cases of fine-tuning are multiple, and diverse, so even if one cannot be certain of any given piece of evidence together, they constitute a compelling case 
for an extraordinarily fine-tuned universe. Dr. Law then says, this doesn't give you the moral properties of God. Of course not. I said that in my opening speech. That's what the moral argument gives you. He says that God's omnipotence could just create the universe out of nothing. Why fine-tune it? He's not very efficient. Efficiency, ladies and gentlemen, is an important value only for someone with either limited time or limited resources, or both. God is not limited in time or resources. I think the problem is that he's thinking of God from the perspective of the engineer. But suppose God is more like the artist or the gourmet chef who enjoys the delight of creating a beautiful universe. I don't think we can presume to tell God how he ought to create the universe. Now, Dr. Law, or Dr. <laughs> Milliken's eighth point is that there's a lot of empty space in the universe. That is itself a function of the fine-tuning. In order for the stars to cook up the elements for intelligent life, the universe has to expand for a certain amount of time so that the large size of the universe actually bespeaks the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. And besides, I think there could be extraterrestrial life that God has created elsewhere. As a theist, I'm perfectly open to that. That leads to the ninth objection to the Nicene Creed says that there is only one incarnation of the Son of God. I think the Nicene Creed is written from our perspective on this planet. God, if he has created intelligent life elsewhere in the cosmos, can easily provide for the salvation of those beings, perhaps through another incarnation, perhaps through another means of salvation, Perhaps those beings never fell into sin and need forgiveness and cleansing as we do. That's God's prerogative. So I don't think any of these nine soundbite-ish objections really take seriously the problem of the fine-tuning, which is an argument that has compelled many physicists and philosophers to take quite seriously the idea that there is a cosmic designer. And of course, if Dr. Milliken then uh, finally deals with the moral argument, the resurrection of Jesus, and personal experience, uh, it's going to be much too late for me to give much response to that um, tonight. But I, I hope that I've said enough to convince you that we have good grounds for thinking that theism is true. And for his final rebuttal, please welcome back Professor Milliken. Thank you very much. Uh, this is really quite a challenge, I have to say. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to start by just responding quickly to some of what Bill has just said. Um, one thing that I found much too quick was the claim that if epiphenomenalism is false, then substance dualism must be true. That is, we must be an amalgam of uh, mind and body where mind is a separate substance. Now, <clears throat> I haven't got statistics on that, but I know that the vast majority of philosophers think that is wrong, but very few are epiphenomenalists, I think. So, the consensus of professional philosophers, I think, is very much against Bill here. Um, I didn't anticipate that issue, uh, so I didn't check, but I did check on the moral issue, the issue of moral realism. Uh, a recent survey of 900 philosophers, 56.3% uh, of them, that's an absolute majority, 
were moral realists. But only 14.6% were theists. One rather assumes that the theists were all moral realists. Um, but nevertheless, that's, that's only, what about a, a, a quarter of the number? So there are plenty of moral realists who are not theists, and I don't understand why um, Bill wants to say that as an atheist, or one m must presuppose that humans have no intrinsic value. Why would one think that? And I want to sharpen my challenge to him on the issue of morality. I know from what Bill has written elsewhere that he thinks it's entirely possible for an atheist to know what is right and wrong. But what he wants to focus on is the ontological question of what it takes to have an objective moral value. So I'd like him to say more about that. How is it that atheists who don't believe that there's a God, who don't see the evidence for that, are able nonetheless to detect objective moral values? Now, he pushed the analogy with physical objects. Uh, the claim is that we can rely on the perception of objective moral values um, in the same way that we can rely on our perception of physical objects. So you shouldn't be skeptical about objective moral values um, if you are prepared to accept physical objects, which we all do, of course. But it seems to me there's, there's a bit of a problem here. I'm, I ought to perhaps preface this by saying I have real problems with the word objective. So if somebody was to say to me, do you believe in objective moral values, my first question would have to be, well, could you please spell out much more clearly what you mean by objective? Because there's a whole bundle of things that objective could potentially mean. I may come back to those if I have time later. But anyway, here's the issue. If, if an atheist can perceive a chair and know that the chair is there, without having to worry about what the exact nature of the chair, chair is, and surely we can do that, we can perceive physical objects and yet not know what their real nature is. Uh, presumably an atheist in the same way can perceive moral value without knowing what its nature is. Now I, I find it very puzzling how to make sense of this. How can the reality of a moral value depend on God being up there when God's being up there makes no impact at all on the person who is perceiving and responding to the moral value. I'm, I'm not questioning whether a theist might be comforted by the thought that the, the moral value puts them in tune with the ruler of the universe, sure. But I don't understand any reason whatever why an atheist cannot believe in objective moral values. And certainly there's no reason why an atheist has to presuppose that humans have no intrinsic value. There are all sorts of things about humans that make them special. We are special, of course we are. Um, you are also of my species, and that might give me a reason to care about you more than I care about others, even if there were nothing special about you. But in fact, there's plenty special about us. We're rational in ways that other animals aren't. And it's quite understandable why one should value that. I mean, I value knowledge, for example, as a philosopher. Uh, I think knowledge is a wonderful thing. I think it's valuable in itself. Now, am I going to be able to 
spell that out in a way that will persuade everybody or somebody who doesn't see it that way? I'm not sure that I can, but I believe it. But I don't think there being a God up there who is a God of knowledge makes the slightest jot of difference. So I would like an explanation of how it's supposed to. Um, I want to say also a little bit about the uh, resurrection, which I've not yet said anything about. If we had good reason to believe in the supernatural, then perhaps the gospel stories of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth might provide some ground for supposing that this was such an occurrence. But as a basis for belief in God, they seem to me to be feeble. We have four accounts, all written many years after the alleged events, not by eyewitnesses, but by devoted Christians who are writing them precisely to spread their religious belief. Matthew and Luke depend very heavily on Mark, and apparently also on another common source which is lost, generally referred to as Q. So these are not independent reports, but even so they contain many discrepancies, not least with regard to the events and timing of Jesus' passion. The Gospel of John seems to be somewhat later, and yet more discrepant, both in chronology and theology. Here Jesus claims divinity in terms not seen in the other Gospels. And anyone who wants to investigate this, I've put a couple of references up there to a, a, a book by Geza Vermesh uh, uh, and another one by Bart Ehrman. If you really want to know the truth, go and look at the book, see what they say. Um, I think... Certainly when I was a believer, I found this kind of thing quite problematic. Despite the discrepancies, the Gospels do cohere reasonably well. But that's not surprising, because they were selected by the early church as canonical, whilst many more were rejected as forgeries or heretical. And uh, those are the ones we know of. Uh, that's from a, a different book by Bart Ehrman. So such coherence as there is gives little evidential force. Moreover, they signally fail to cohere, especially in the passion narratives, with non-gospel literature. So here we have from Matthew's gospel the claim about the veil of the temple being rent, an earthquake, uh, darkness over all the earth for three hours, and bodies of the saints being revived and going and walking around Jerusalem. None of this is reported in any other contemporary sources. Are we really supposed to take this seriously as evidence that the scientific worldview is fundamentally wrong? Um, I've got some other points, but I'm probably going to have to stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Just before I invite our two debaters this evening to conclude with five minutes each, I would like to thank them both because it isn't easy, a format such as this, but it's an important format and I think they have handled themselves with dignity and professionalism. I think we owe them a round of applause for that. <laughs> Could I welcome back for his last five minutes, and I mean five minutes, <laughs> <laughs> Professor Craig. Thank you. <laughs> Well, in my closing comments, let me try to draw together some of the threads of this debate. First, have we seen any good arguments for atheism in tonight's debate? Well, I think it's clear that we haven't really heard any compelling arguments 
for atheism. All we've heard is that if God existed, then his existence should be more obvious. But that is a highly subjective personal judgment. I see no reason to think it's true, especially if God knew that providing more evidence wouldn't lead to a greater degree of salvation and knowledge of God on the part of human persons. So we've not seen any reason tonight to answer the question, does God exist, in the negative. Have we seen some good reasons to think that theism is true? Well, I think we have. First, the origin of the universe. We've seen philosophical arguments and physical arguments for the beginning of the universe. We've also seen that if the universe began to exist, had an absolute beginning, that it surely must have had a transcendent cause that brought it into being. Um, and whether or not one wants to indict epiphenomenalism or not as a theory of mind, the point is that I can't think of anything that would fit the description of an immaterial, uh, non-spatial, trans-temporal substance which could causally bring the universe into being apart from an unembodied mind. That conclusion is then confirmed by the fine-tuning argument for a designer of the cosmos which shows that this being must be a mind of incomprehensible intelligence in order to fine-tune this universe for intelligent life. That leads then to the moral argument. Is this creator and designer of the universe a good being? Well, I think so, because if God does not exist, it's plausible that objective moral values and duties do not exist. Here, Dr. Milliken says human beings are rational, but I see no reason to think that that invests them with some sort of intrinsic value on atheism. Uh, for example, Sam Harris is an atheist, and he says that the locus of moral value is the flourishing of sentient life. Now, that would include rats, snakes, uh, baboons, as well as human beings. So why prefer human flourishing on a naturalist view to just sentient life flourishing? Indeed, why should it be sentient life's flourishing that is the locus of the good? It seems to me that short of God, any sort of explanatory stopping point is just arbitrary. Particularly difficult is the problem of moral obligation and prohibition. Where would these come from if there is no moral law giver? Dr. Milliken says most philosophers today are moral realists, but not theists. That's right, and that goes to support premise two, that objective moral values exist. That's what that shows, but you can't appeal to popular vote to try to say, therefore, theism isn't necessary. The fact is that most moral realists don't have any adequate basis for their moral realism insofar as they're non-theists. He says, but then how can we detect moral values? How do we know what they are? Well, I would say that God may have constituted us in such a way that we can apprehend the moral realm. In fact, that's exactly what the Bible says. It says that God has written his moral law in the hearts of all persons so that we have an instinctual grasp of the moral law. So apart from God, it's very hard to see how we can have objective moral duties, but given God, moral duties and values are in place. Finally, the resurrection of Jesus. Here, Dr. Milliken pointed to the discrepancies in the gospel accounts. I want to point out that the three facts that I mentioned are agreed upon by the majority of historians today. He said, but what about Vermish and Ehrman, 
Vermish and Ehrman agree with the facts that I just mentioned. Both of them affirm the empty tomb. Ehrman affirms uh, all of these facts. Here's what Ehrman says, and I quote, there are a couple of things that we can say for certain about Jesus after his death. We can say with relative certainty that he was buried. We also have solid traditions to indicate that women found this tomb empty three days later. This is attested in all our gospel sources early and late, and so it appears to be a historical datum. And so I think we can say that after Jesus' death with some certainty that he was buried possibly by this fellow Joseph of Arimathea, and that three days later he appeared not to have been in his tomb. Ehrman also accepts the appearances and the origin of the disciples' belief. So why doesn't Ehrman accept the resurrection of Jesus? For philosophical reasons. He's a naturalist, and therefore miracles are impossible for Ehrman. The skepticism of biblical critics who deny the resurrection of Jesus is not predicated on historical grounds, but philosophical grounds. The facts that I mentioned are in place. But if you're not a naturalist, if you're open-minded to theism, it seems to me very plausible that the best explanation of the facts is the one the disciples gave, God raised Jesus from the dead. Finally, my fifth point has gone undiscussed today, that you can know God exists by immediate and personal experiencing him. The God who raised Jesus from the dead is alive today and can be known personally, uh, and I would encourage you to seek and uh, find him in your own personal life if you haven't had the joy of doing so yet. Thank you. For his final five minutes summing up, please welcome back Professor Millikan. Thank you very much. Um, I disagree with Bill that no arguments for atheism have been presented here, uh, and indeed that I haven't addressed the issue of religious experience. I pointed out at the beginning that religious experience is an extremely unreliable uh, method of uh, knowledge or alleged knowledge. People have religious experiences of all sorts. Uh, perhaps those disciples after the resurrection were having those too. But the appropriate way to check up on those is not biblical scholarship. It's actually experimental psychology. The question we have to ask ourselves is how likely is it that that evidence could have arisen by perfectly natural means, by human psychology? Uh, and that's not begging the question. It needs to be done. We don't yet know the answers, but we will at some point. Now, it seems to me entirely reasonable, if one finds that that evidence can be explained in a natural way, indeed that there were loads of people uh, making divine claims, uh, supposedly performing miracles, that we've got loads of Gospels uh, and other written works, not only from Christians but other groups, um, coming out with all sorts of fantastic stories. It's not surprising you can sift four of them and, and find ones that are, that are relatively plausible, even though, as we've seen, some of what they say uh, seems very far-fetched. Does Bill really believe that those bodies rose from the dead and walked around Jerusalem at the time of the uh, resurrection? Now, it seems to be reasonable that if we can explain these phenomena in natural terms. That is the better explanation. But I haven't just relied on that. I've also uh, relied on the, the point 
that there are lots of different supernaturalist beliefs, loads of them, all supported by similar kinds of grounds. And therefore those grounds are no good. And I don't believe that the arguments that Bill has given uh, are good either. Well, sorry, I don't believe that they work. Bill is very keen on appealing to what he can imagine. Now, the problem is that what we can imagine is, has proved to be a very unreliable guide. I mean, he, he, he has problems with the number zero. Yeah, but it's used all the time, and it's used very effectively. And it, many of us find no problem with it. Uh, infinities, yes, well, they look difficult too. They used to be thought of as completely untamed until Cantor tamed them. Now, in those cases, we have logic and the avoidance of contradiction to guide us. And we can find that these things can be dealt with in a very coherent way. In other cases, like physics, we have to rely on experiment, on observation. Those are the only ways we can know what causes what. Bill continues to appeal to the claim that something can't in come into existence without an efficient cause. I've pointed out that he hasn't actually got any reason for making that claim. All right, the quantum vac vacuum is not nothing, but still, you haven't got any evidence um, with regard to nothing. And claiming it about the universe, well, there's no evidence for that. So modern physics, if it teaches us anything, teaches us that these kinds of instincts are not reliable guides. Uh, the only thing we can go on is scientific investigation, careful, critical investigation, not taking tradition for granted. Just look at those empty hundreds of years when nothing changed. That's what happens if you rely all the time on tradition. Finally, I haven't mentioned the problem of evil much at all, and that's because um, I know what Bill's response to that is, which is typically to say, well, we don't know the ways of God. There's so much nastiness in the world that has been rehearsed by plenty of uh, writers. Uh, I'm not going to carry on reciting that, though I think it tells a very strong tale. Um, one can always respond, well, God's ways are mysterious. For all we know, he has reasons. Yeah, maybe. For all we know, there's an anti-God, and he's got reasons too. That's no reason whatever for believing in God. Just the fact that the conflicting evidence can be explained away. I mean, think about it. If God is an omnipotent, omniscient agent, he can do whatever he likes. Okay. So what sort of world would you expect him to create? What, what's the, the evidence that would show that one particular divine being has been at work rather than another? Well, it's the goodness, isn't it? That's the crucial thing. So the problem of evil shouldn't be called the problem of evil. It should be called the problem of the empirical evidence. The problem of the empirical evidence is that the world we see just doesn't match up to what you'd expect from a perfect God. And moreover, when Bill is saying that morals depends on this God, how does he deal with the fact that the morality that comes from that supposedly omnipotent being, like annihilating six whole nations of people because they happen to be in the wrong place, is completely at odds with the morality that the vast majority of us now would accept. So I think the appropriate attitude is, as very often, scepticism, doubt. In fact, in this particular case, I think 
there's pretty strong evidence against the existence of God, very little in favor. Uh, even if you believe in something supernatural, maybe a supernatural being sufficiently powerful to bring about a resurrection, maybe a sufficiently powerful being to give you a feeling of religious experience, that doesn't show an omnipotent, omniscient being. It doesn't go any way towards showing that. And I haven't seen any arguments that do. Thank you. I think one of the strange things is if this had been the late 19th century there would have been newspapers from all over the country reporting on this debate and there would have been full reports in the daily papers tomorrow. I think it's a sad reflection on society and the media that there is not going to be that kind of reporting tomorrow. But can I once again, before we enter into the questions, ask you to show our appreciation for two men who are not only protagonists but have shown respect and sensitivity with their approaches this evening and show that you can disagree vehemently but you can do so with courtesy and respect for each other. Ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to ask each of the professors to make their replies as succinct as possible. I know that's going to be difficult. And I just want to, before I move into the questions from the floor, ask them a question that struck me as I was listening to them. You both made a lot about objective moral values, particularly you, Bill, and you had a major problem with the word objectivity. And a lot hung, hangs on that. Can you just go over what you mean by objective moral values and can you then respond to what your problems are with it? Right. I'm thinking of something that is normative but it is independently binding of any community of human persons or any individual human persons actually accepting it. Your response to that, Pete? My response is that there are quite a lot of non-theistic theories that would advocate such values. But I, my problem with the word objective, well, it can mean so many different things. It can mean you know, impartial, unbiased, uh, making judgments that takes all relevant factors into account and isn't distracted by noise, seeing things from different points of view, uh, measurable. You know, there are so many different uses of the word objective that I think uh, uh, unless one explicates very clearly what it means... Um, it's just too vague to be useful. Bill? Well, that was why I stated clearly what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on then. Uh, question. If the universe... I think I'm going to go to you first all of right. all, Bill, if I may, for this one. If the universe needs a cause, doesn't God? Mm -hmm. What causes God? Remember the argument that I presented, uh, the universe began to exist. If the universe began to exist, then it has a transcendent cause. Therefore, the universe has a transcendent cause. The way I usually formulate this argument is the way Peter uh, addressed it. I usually say whatever begins to exist has a cause. That is to say, things don't come into being without causes. Um, but if something never began to exist, if it's eternal, then I don't see any reason to think that it needs a cause. And this isn't special pleading for God. This is what the atheist has in the past always said about the universe. It is just eternal and uncaused. But that, I think, is now 
untenable in light of modern physics and the philosophical arguments I gave. So God, I would say, is simply a metaphysically necessary, uncaused, eternal being. Does that not perhaps strike some problems with your arguments about infinity? Ah, yes, it would if I thought that God existed through a backwards, infinite series of past events. It would apply to the life of God as well as to physical events. And therefore, the conclusion I draw, and the one that is drawn by traditional proponents of this argument, like Al-Ghazali, the medieval Muslim theologian, is that time had a beginning, and that the, the, the boundary, as it were, of time is the eternal or the timeless state of God, so that God is timeless without creation. God would be analogous to the cosmological singularity which marks the beginning of the universe in the standard model. It is not a point in space-time, it's a boundary of, of time. And that's what I would say similarly to God's eternity. Peter. Yeah. Um, whatever ex- begins to exist has a cause. I mean, I think there's something a little bit sneaky here in that um, it, look, it can look as though the premise is being cooked up in order to suit God. But I do f- feel that the question asked um, makes a good point. Anything that you can say about God, um, the onus is on the theist to explain why you can't say the same about the universe. If God can be eternal, why can't the universe? If God can exist without a cause, why can't the universe? Um, I also want to make this point that that all of our knowledge of any of this stuff, our our own intuitions are not reliable. We have to rely on experience. And we don't have any experience of things coming into uh, existence ex nihilo, either with or without a cause, except possibly quantum particles. Um, So I don't see how we can possibly know this. Again, experience tells us that minds are dependent on bodies. And I'm not prejudging the question here about you know, immortal life and all that, but just think about evolution. Okay, I mean, I take it the fine-tuning argument naturally goes along with support for the theory of evolution. Because if you're just going to create um, intelligent creatures, just go and do it, right? You don't need to go through all this rigmarole of 13 billion years. Um, now, in an evolutionary theory, you've got mind arising eventually when, when we do, uh, but it's coming from body. When babies are born, the, bo- the body's there first, then the mind comes. Whereas the theistic theory says that in this one unique case, the mind comes first and can exist without the body, and we've got no evidence for that at all. Just before I ask you to respond about the theory of evolution, you mentioned several times in your presentation and rebuttal about the idea that why didn't God create a perfect world if he was all-knowing and all-seeing? What would that then lead to the argument from perhaps a Christian point of view or a religious point of view about free will? Oh, I think that's an extremely uh, weak argument. The idea that we're most free when there's least evidence seems to me to be extraordinary. If I have a choice between two things and one of them is something I really like, and the other one I don't, and I choose the one I really like, then surely to goodness that's a free choice. If on the other hand I end up, as it were, tossing a coin, that doesn't make it more free, it makes it less free, if anything. Um, when, when, you f- when you freely uh, do something standardly, it's because you've got a reason to do it. So uh, uh, if you've got no reason, that's not freedom. 
Bill, can I ask you about the theory of evolution and Peter's point, and then to come back on about free will as well? Well, theologically, I'm quite open to the theory of evolution. I think that this is a question to be settled scientifically. And any doubts that I might have about the biological theory of evolution would be scientific, not theological. Uh, namely, the explanatory mechanisms of genetic mutation and natural selection have not been demonstrated to be adequate explanatorily to account for this amount of biological complexity in so brief a time. And when you press evolutionary biologists on this, they will admit that they don't really know that these mechanisms are adequate. It's simply an extrapolation from very limited evidence to just a massive uh, macroevolutionary inference. And I fully expect that in this century, we will see a new theory emerge which, with additional explanatory mechanisms. Uh, and that's already beginning to happen in uh, uh, developmental uh, evolutionary biology. Could I make one other very brief point? I think Peter's answer surfaces a very deep difference between us, which we don't probably have time to talk about that tonight. And that is, I think that Peter is what's called uh, an epistemological naturalist or naturalized epistemology. He takes uh, logic and scientific evidence as the only sources for knowledge, whereas I also accept rational intuition in addition to those. And as Michael Ray has argued in his book, World Without Design, naturalized epistemology is really incapable of justification because it can't be justified through its own uh, resources. You can't prove through logic and scientific evidence that you should only believe what can be proved through logic and scientific evidence. So the only really defensible form of naturalized epistemology is to say this is simply a methodological assumption which a researcher adopts to do his work, but if somebody else wants to have different methodological assumptions, then he's free to do so as well. So, Peter, are you a naturalised epistemologist? Oh, I was really pleased with myself then. <laughs> I've been panicking for the last five minutes. How do I pronounce that properly? <laughs> I hate to say this again. Right. Um, actually, I'm a sceptic. I mean, I, I, I'm open-minded, and I'm not dogmatically naturalist. I mean, I think actually naturalism is a very... I mean, I think that when you think of some, somebody who thinks that the only things that exist are physical things, right, it's natural to think in terms of the physics of the 17th and 18th centuries. So we think of things as, as made of solid matter bashing around into each other. And then you think, well, wait a minute, uh, modern physics isn't at all like that. So what is a natural property when you start getting weird quantum things? And I'm not sure that, I, I don't see that it's easy to divide things up in this way. Science evolves. What I am committed to is empiricism. We learn from experience what, what does what. And as we learn that, our theories get, they, they, they develop um, and often get more complex and further and further away from intuition. I mean, the appeal to rational to intuition, I mean, the trouble is so-called rational intuition has led people so astray. I mean, look, event A is simultaneous with event B. Event B is simultaneous with event C. It follows, doesn't it, by rational intuition that event A is, is simultaneous with event C. Yeah, and then Einstein comes along with special relativity. And then we find that evidence actually supports it. 
And uh, the similar points can be made about, uh, uh, about quantum mechanics. I, I think, as I say, experience trumps claims to intuition. Re regarding natural se selection, I mean, in so brief a time, I mean, I, in my experience, most people who object to evolution, I, I'm not sure that Bill's one of these, he's saying that I take it natural selection by itself is not adequate to explain evolution. That, that, that's, that's quite probably true, I would expect. Um, there may be all sorts of um, uh, logical and structural principles there. Which, uh, so I, I, I'm not going to, to object to that. But many of those who object to evolution you know, say, oh, well, you couldn't, it couldn't happen in so short a time. And they're motivated by biblical infallibility. And I, I'm astonished that so many people can accept that. I mean... Noah's flood, you know, all those species, do you know how many species there are? And they all went into the ark, come off it. And then people say, oh no, but it wasn't two of every species, it was two of every kind. Oh, I see. So these two bears in those 6,000 years have managed to evolve to produce all the species of bears that are around now. And what about beetles? Um, you know, be consistent. If you're going to criticize evolution for not being powerful enough to do the job, then don't tell me that since the time of Noah's ark, uh, all the species on the earth have come from a relatively small number that were in there. Question from Paul Burtwell. Uh, I'll address it to you first, uh, Peter. Can it, I just say Yes, of thing. course you can. <laughs> I one, knew it was coming. Just one sentence. The recent <laughs> results at CERN, Peter, about superluminal particles suggest that there are relations of absolute simultaneity. Um, yeah, well, all right, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, no, I mean, if there are, that's fine, right? You learn from experience. Science changes. I mean, what I would say here is uh, QED, didn't I say, the science of a hundred years' time may look very different from the science we have today. It's so tempting to get this result that's published in 2007 and say, there we are, Eureka. Come on. But in if this it's case, only four it years old, what's going to happen in four, another 40, another 400 years? But it would have vindicated rational intuition in this case. No, no, it wouldn't. It. No, because the experimental results that came from Einstein showed that rational intuition could be false. That's all you need. And plenty of people have claimed rational intuition for all sorts of things that have proved to be unjustified. Question from Paul Burtwell. If an infinite regress of past events is both math mathematically and logistically impossible, what is the ultimate cause of everything, if not God? I think God is the ultimate cause of everything. So you and, and, yeah, and, and, and I, I, I see no argument, first of all, why there has to be an ultimate cause. I mean, it's plausible, but I don't, I don't claim... Look, my brain has evolved to deal with ordinary middle-sized objects in an environment very different, actually, from the environment now. Why should I suppose that I am able to plumb the mysteries of the universe. I mean, it's amazing how far we've got. It's absolutely incredible um, how clever we are at working out the mysteries of the universe with the aid of you know, lots of very sophisticated machines and by people, by building on the shoulders of others over, well, in four centuries, we've done remarkable things. But compare that with the 16... 100 years before then, when everything was dominated by religious belief. One of the points where there was some, dare I say, approach to an agreement, or at least an approach to understanding each other, was fine-tuning. Oh. Mm -hmm. You did say so. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm wondering. I, I'm wondering why you think that. I, th I think we understood each other most of the time. No, I know you understood it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> there was a big difference of opinion, obviously. But on that fine tuning, there seems to be a, a little bit more of a, may I say, a rapprochement. Well, I did. Quite a lot of people just dismiss the fine-tuning argument as complete rubbish, whereas it seems to me that, as I said, su suppose we were talking in a hundred or a thousand years' time and it still appeared that there were these unexplained coincidences, and by then we had really good reason to, to believe, you know, maybe, we, we were, maybe they will, that there really is no ultimate explanation for this and it really is just coincidence, there's not a deeper theory, you know, and, and, and quantum mechanics and general relativity have been reconciled and we know what dark matter is and we know what dark energy is and all this, these problems that have emerged in the last 30 years or so have been solved, then I'd say, yeah, there's a phenomenon which demands explanation, sure. And, and, and there I'm, as it were, with the... Well, I'm partly with the theist. That where I have reservations is this... If you think God is omnipotent and omniscient, then any logical possibility is open to him. And so I would see fine-tuning in those circumstances, which are very conditional, as evidence of a cosmic intelligence, but not one that's infinite. Bill. Well, I don't think you could infer, obviously, infinite power from fine-tuning or any of these other arguments. For, for that, you'd probably need to go to an ontological-type argument. But uh, I simply infer to a being of enormous power for what these arguments demonstrate. Can I just make a comment there? In, in 2004, I published a paper in Mind on the ontological argument. I think it's like it. 60 or 70 pages, so I'd probably best not say anything about it here. <laughs> I shall just say that I don't think ontological arguments stand the slightest chance, and I would be prepared to bet my house on that. Okay, can you just define very quickly what you mean by ontological? God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. If he didn't exist, it would be possible to conceive of something greater, and that would be a contradiction, therefore God exists. Yep. That's Anselm's version, but modern modal versions like Alvin Plantinga has defended, I think, are sound arguments. Plantinga basically argues that if the concept of a maximally great being is possible, then it follows that he necessarily exists. So God's existence, so defined, is either impossible or necessary, but it can't be merely contingent. And I think that God's existence is possible and that therefore God does exist. But this is a, a totally different argument that we haven't even broached tonight and would take us far well, let's move How, on. However, no, 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 before you move on, let me just say, I think what Plantinga does, he's, he defines God as a being which is omniperfect, such that if it possibly exists, then it necessarily exists. And it possibly exists. Now, to me, that's just begging the question. I mean, he's set it up in such a way that the logic does carry the implication that Bill said. Uh, but to me, it's, more, it's a better proof that God could not possibly exist because he'd be so exceptional. No other causal entities that we come across have necessary existence, as far as we can tell. I can't stop him. Well, I, I mean, that's saying that God, if he existed, would be extraordinary and unique. Well, of course, what else would you expect? But you can't prove it by word. Now, one of the points, Peter, that you brought up was about evil. It wasn't something you were able to go into a lot of detail about. But there is a, a, a question that 
kind of touches on this I'd like to bring to your attention. Do you think God used some sort of evolutionary mechanism? If so, how do you reconcile a seemingly cruel mechanism with a loving God stroke agency? Yeah. Um, I, I think there are two things that might be said briefly about this. First, and this relates to Peter's other question about why would an omnipotent God do this, this all hinges on what God's purposes are for human history. And as a Christian, I believe that the ultimate purpose for human history that God has in mind is bringing people freely into relationship with himself forever. And it may well be that only in a world suffused with natural evil as well as moral evil, then the maximum number of people would freely come to find God and his salvation. So that natural evil may be part of the framework or the context in which people freely choose for or against God. The second thing that I've come to realize recently through reading Michael Murray's book, Nature Red and Tooth and Claw, published by Oxford University Press, is that on the basis of recent scientific biological evidence, we can see that there are three levels of pain thresholds among animals. The lowest level is merely reaction to stimulus. You poke an amoeba with a needle and it recoils, but it doesn't feel anything. Second level would be an awareness of pain. This is what sentient beings like dogs, cats, horses feel. They experience pain. But the third level is a second-order awareness that one is oneself in pain. And the scientific evidence indicates that this kind of awareness, this second-order awareness, is only found in the higher primates and human beings. Uh, it's found in the frontal cortex of the, or frontal lobe of the cortex of the brain. And therefore, even though animals at large experience pain, they're not aware of it. They are literally not aware that they are in pain. And therefore, this goes a long way toward diminishing the problem of, of animal suffering, I think. I think God in his mercy has so created the natural world that animals really do not suffer in the way that we human beings do when we experience pain. Peter. Yes, um, I didn't say much on the problem of evil, partly because it's so familiar. And I have heard some of Bill's debates, and it seems to me that most of his opponents don't actually take him up on the detailed logic of the arguments that I did take him up on, and I wanted to see what he had to say. Um, I knew what he had to say on the problem of evil. I find the idea that God has designed the universe in such a way to maximize those of us, those who come to relationship with him, absolutely absurd. And bear in mind, God here makes the rules, okay? He's not like a parent who, with a child, has to t take, as it were, a pre-existing nature for granted and then try and work round that, you know, allowing the child to hurt itself so that it learns, because that's the only way it's going to learn, say. God makes the rules. God could have made it so that the best way to come into relationship with him was through solid evidence of his existence and his actions, instead of which it's, it's a complete mystery, and I don't find any logic in that at all. Now, one thing that Bill's keen on saying is that if you seek God, you'll find him. Well, actually, uh, I imprudently, in a time of high unemployment, changed subject at university from maths to philosophy and theology because I wanted to know whether my religious belief, which I felt was coming under threat, um, 
could actually be justified. I was also absolutely appalled by the prevalence of fundamentalism, which seemed to me to be absolutely just killing your brain. Anyway, I spent, as I say, I ch completely changed my orientation, spent lots of time uh, reading the Bible, reading theology, reading philosophy, to try to get to the truth. And I'm afraid my conclusion was a negative one. Um, so, um, was I insincere? Am I to blame? Or is this universe not one in which sincere searchers after truth, using their reason, which on the theistic hypothesis was given by God, cannot find good grounds for believing in him? There's something funny there. One of the things that you both mentioned but didn't really go into great detail of it, at one stage you said, Bill, we'll come back about the genetic fallacy. And you said, well, yes, I would do. Could you just explain what you mean by the genetic fallacy sure. and, and then respond to that, please? The genetic fallacy is the attempt to invalidate a viewpoint by showing how the person came to hold it. So, for example, if I say, well, the only reason you believe in democracy is because you were raised in the liberal West. Uh, but if you'd been born in fundamentalist Iran, you wouldn't have believed in democracy. Therefore, your belief in democracy is false or unjustified. That would be an example of the genetic fallacy. Even if it were true that the reason you believe in democracy is because you were raised in Great Britain, that doesn't mean that that belief that democratic government is the best is therefore a false belief. That's the genetic fallacy. So how important is that then to refute that with regard to your arguments about the existence of God? Well, it would mean that if Peter were saying that because religion is a cultural phenomenon, for example, if you were raised in Pakistan, you'd likely be Muslim, but if you'd been raised in medieval Spain, you'd likely be Catholic. If you mean thereby to say, therefore, your belief that Catholicism is true is false, or your belief that Islam is true is therefore false or unjustified, that would be to commit the genetic fallacy. But he quickly said, I am not arguing that way, and therefore I am not committing the genetic fallacy. I'm simply saying that this shows that um, this same method leads to conflicting beliefs, and therefore it's not a reliable method. That, that, that's right. I also think it's very important for us to realize how incredibly fallible we are. I mean, when you look at the history, right, just look at that total lack of progress for centuries. Right? And, and the plebs weren't even able to read books. Right? One of the alumni of my college, Hartford College in Oxford, uh, William Tyndale, got burnt at the stake for translating the Bible. Another alumnus of Hartford College was the first great philosopher to write in the English language, Thomas Hobbes. But before then, total lack of progress. All these people totally committed to beliefs that they had been taught by their parents and by their society. That should give us pause. We are the same kind of people, right? So we should look at our firm beliefs and ask ourselves, do we have good reason? And simply holding them, simply feeling strongly about them, simply finding it difficult to imagine that they could be false is not a good reason. And that is a point that's made by what I said. And, and you would agree that that would apply to naturalist or atheistic beliefs as well oh, yes. that a person might be raised with. Absolutely. One last question. 
It's from Ben Richmond. Uh, if the teachings of Jesus Bill can be described as coming from God or of being the Word of God, why then is this not more evident? It would be my submission, says Ben, that there are and have been equally even more influential people in the past and today. Oh, really? Uh, no, I, I mean, I think just speaking as a historian, there's no single individual in the world who has had such an impact upon world history as Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, in the West, we date our whole system of calendar keeping from his birth, B.C., A.D. There's nobody who has so influenced the world as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that doesn't obviously mean that what he said is true. It just shows there was incredible influence emanating from this person. But I've given an argument as to why we ought to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, namely the evidence for his resurrection. And I would invite this questioner to look into the historical credibility of the gospel narratives of the resurrection. Don't just uh, flip this off as, as insignificant. Really look into it, because if even a scholar like a Bart Ehrman, who is terribly skeptical, feels compelled to admit these facts that I've summarized in my talk, that's very sobering and should give a serious pause, especially when you then see that the reasons that Ehrman won't infer the resurrection are fallacious philosophical arguments based on a misunderstanding of the probability calculus. Peter? Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I'm, maybe Mohammed was just as influential, maybe more so, I don't know. But certainly Jesus has been extremely influential. I also think a lot of uh, Jesus' moral teachings are actually quite enlightened. I don't think they're universally so, but I think um, generally um, he comes across a, a, a certainly admirable compared to most. Um, with regard to the resurrection, I'm, I'm afraid I just find that evidence very poor. I mean, it, it's four Gospels. You've got the story of the empty tomb, but it's all from one community and it's written a long time after the events um, I, think, I think in order to investigate that as I say it, it, it's a big mistake just to look at those manuscripts you've got to ask something about human psychology and how prone we are to inventing stories to accepting stories when they're passed to us and so forth what happens within religious communities? All sorts of surprising things, right? I mean, a lot of people say, oh, well, of course, the, the, the disciples must have believed in the resurrection. They must have had good reason, because look, they went and risked their lives. And yeah, that's common sense psychology. But actually, it, 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 there's an interesting book, quite well known, you know, When Prophecies Fail, where some researchers got inside an apocalyptic group who, uh, and it was predicted that the end of the world was going to come with spacemen coming down and so on and it didn't happen and you'd think wouldn't you they'd give it up but they didn't they became more fervent and apparently this is quite a well-established psychological phenomenon so if you want to know how we behave this is the message I've given throughout you can only learn about the world through experience not by sitting in your armchair and using rational intuition and we need to know whether these stories are plausible in that context. Bill, last point. I'll recommend a book as well on this very subject. N.T. Wright, a fine British uh, historical scholar, has really worked on this very problem of the cognitive dissonance that would be caused in the disciples by the execution of Jesus and the dashing of their messianic hopes. 
and whether that can be plausibly explicable in psychological terms as the grounds for their saying that he is risen from the dead and therefore is Messiah after all. N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, is an excellent, excellent historical study of this very question. So don't neglect that if you do choose to look into this issue. Can I just finally say, and from my point, go and read David Hume Dialogues. (laughs) Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. And when you've read that and had a good laugh, read also his inquiry concerning human understanding. I would like to say thank you to both Professor Millikan and Professor Craig. We've ranged far and wide, not only over philosophy, religion, theology, but history, physics and science, and indeed morality. Can I ask you to show your appreciation for two outstanding speakers, please? For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.